Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticam. This podcast aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. Here we cover a variety of topics that are going to help you be more confident and successful in the field while you're hunting deer. My name is Josh Raley. I'm your host, and we have an awesome episode lined up for you today. I was able to catch up with Jacob Sklinner, which if you haven't heard of Jacob Sklinner yet, he's one of those guys that I feel like uh, is on the uh, on the rise, I guess you could say, in the whitetail space. The guy just thinks about deer hunting differently. He takes things to a whole other level, just the way he thinks through not only his strategy, but his tactics as well. Uh, and he's just a good dude. He's a good guy. And uh, the guy really knows his stuff when it comes to hunting whitetails. So I wanted to get Jacob on to talk a bit about early season strategy. Now, Jacob has experience in a lot of different kinds of terrain, so I think you're going to hear a lot in this episode that's applicable for you. We talk a bit about map scouting, we talk about in-season scouting, we talk about pressure and the impact that that can have on early season deer, and then finally, of course, we talk about setting up on early season bucks. I'm going to let you know now, it's a great episode, you're going to learn a lot, you might want to grab a pen and paper, now sit back and enjoy the show. All right, joining me for this week's episode of the How to Hunt Deer podcast, Mr. Jacob Sklinner. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh. It's good to be here. Really excited to, to get into a deep diving conversation here. Dude, I, I can't wait, man. We've we've been talking now for, I don't even know what time it is. What time is it? It's 7 o'clock. So it's 7 o'clock my time. So we've been talking for 30 minutes already, and I'm freaking fired up uh, to get going here on, on some deer hunting stuff. We've We've been talking about... Uh, you know, your season so far and kind of how things have gone and hunts that you've done. And um, I've got my first sit of the year tomorrow morning and I cannot wait. Like I cannot get in the timber soon enough. Unfortunately, I'm going to be working on podcasting stuff until roughly 12 or one uh, tonight. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a long one, but it'll be good in the morning to get out there and and get after it. So uh, Jacob, just real quick, man. So you were on episode 91 of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast. I've not had you on the How to Hunt Deer Podcast yet. We did a whole episode where we were talking about map scouting and um, sort of upping your game. You know, I think a lot of guys maybe approach map scouting in kind of a haphazard kind of way. They just pull up the map, and it's like, all right, what am I looking for? And you really provided a systematic approach where you really broke things down. So why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your background, just real quick for folks who maybe don't know you uh, and maybe – give them an idea of why uh, that episode talking map scouting was so dang good. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. appreciate the compliments. Um, so yeah, my name is Jacob Sklenner. Uh, I'm originally from Pewaukee, Wisconsin. So Southeastern Wisconsin, I went to college at UW Platteville out in Southwestern Wisconsin, which is a lot of hill country. It's uh, quite a beautiful place, honestly, for deer and, and terrain in general. Um, but I was a mechanical engineering degree or mechanical engineering major there, graduated the degree and, um, I wrestled there as well. So I have a lot of my hard work kind of drilling background and my, uh, my very obsessive background comes from wrestling. And, uh, a lot of my analytical approach comes from that mechanical engineering side of me. And, uh, I'm currently have moved back to Southeastern Wisconsin and I'm working in Waukesha now and doing a lot of hunting around here. But uh, a few years back, I, um, I had a really interesting story that dealt with a lot of hardships that came out with a very nice buck on public land. Uh, I'd always talked to Dan and fault a little bit just through forums and stuff. And um, I shared with him that hunt and he said, Hey, do you want to come over and interview and make an episode out of this? And so we, uh, I came over, we talked for like three hours. Uh, he said, you know what? Like this went really well you should probably just keep filming for us. Like you should, you should keep filming your hunts and you should keep, putting him out on the beast. And I was like, all right, as long as I get to edit it, cause I just want to become good at that side. And so ever since then I've been um, filming for the hunting beast. I actually just did my first public land challenge with the hunting beast, the battle of the bows in Nebraska. And um, yeah, man, I'm just absolutely torn up with deer hunting. Um, I don't think obsession even lights a candle to it. I think I was put on this earth to do it and uh, to help teach people how to do it as well. And uh, nothing gets me more excited than, than being out in the woods. Yeah, man, there are there are certain guests that I get a chance to talk to, and and I talk to a lot of folks, right? But there are certain guests that I get a chance to talk to, and after having that conversation with them, I change like things change in me, like I just make changes just just out of nowhere, 
and that conversation that you and I had uh, back a, a couple months ago now at this point, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. man, I made some big changes. Like my, my map scouting has changed for the better. Um, just my thought process when it comes to map scouting and figuring out where I'm going to be on a property has changed. Uh, dude, and I started working out pretty hard too because yeah. you guys are all getting after it on Instagram. And I was like, here over the last couple of years, I've found myself getting frustrated because like I'm, I'm in that situation or that, that age of life where it's like, I can do what I used to do, but I pay for it. Like I can mm-hmm. go in as far as I used to, but I'm going to be like really hurting. And so I'm starting to make decisions based on my fitness level where it's like, should I go to that spot that's a mile and a half in, or should I stop here at three quarters of a mile? And it's like, mm, I'm going to stop here at three quarters of a mile, you know, or, or whatever the case may be. And it's mm-hmm. based specifically on the fact that these, you know, these dang boots are feeling heavy or whatever the case may be. And I was like, <laughs> I, I can't be doing that anymore. Like I need to make decisions on, uh, about hunting totally based on the hunt where I think I've got the highest odds of success, not, you know, where I think is going to give me an easier in and out. So, uh, yeah, man, I, after that conversation, I changed a lot of things about my approach for this year and I'm going into this year feeling really good. So I've got a spot that I'm going into tomorrow. I've not, I, so I've been there, I've been there during Turkey season, but I've not hunted whitetails there. I did not scout the area, but I think after, um, after what I've learned from talking with you, after a lot of map scouting, after some hard work, I'm going in there pretty dang confident in in this spot and it's essentially it's a scouting mission but i'm going to climb a tree anyway you know when i get there in the morning we'll see how it goes but uh man so let's let's kick things off here uh talking a little bit about early season strategy um like i said last time we talked it was all about map scouting and and i want to hear when it comes to early season strategy like where do you where do you even start yeah, well, well, first I want to say, like, you know, it's great to hear that that you've been inspired and that you're you're busting your butt, man. I mean, heck yeah, you. Uh, it's it, we don't really post that stuff. A lot of us actually feel really uncomfortable posting that workout stuff, um, my, myself included, because my motto has always been like work in the dark, you know, all throughout wrestling, and um, you you don't want to see your opponents, you know, watch them your workout. But um, the fact that a few people take some stuff from it and that it's giving you confidence in your season and and you're, uh, you know, making some life changes like that's, you know, what it's all about. So For sure. you know, every time I get a message from someone or I hear from someone that I look up to, like you, you know, like the stuff you're doing is awesome. And every time I hear that, like it, it makes me feel inspired to be better too. So that, that's not just a one way avenue. So I really appreciate hearing that from you. Yeah. Thanks man. Um, hey, keep, keep posting it though. Cause that's stuff you guys are doing <laughs> on Instagram. I see that and I'm like, all right. So maybe I missed my workout, but I'm going to go do something midday. You know, I didn't, yeah, I didn't hit it this morning, the but same I'm going to after it. So. Right. That we're the same way with it. Like uh, us guys that you think that you see us posting all the time. Like we don't love getting like kicking our own ass essentially. <laughs> like it's, it's not the best thing in the world, but you know, I saw that, you know, I saw that Bo got out. I saw that Jake got out. I saw that, you know, Ryan Glitzky got out. I saw all these guys that got out, got in some work and they probably felt the exact same way I did. You know, I felt like I didn't have time. But like, I was like, damn it, they got out. Now I have to, like, right. I got to get after it. And so, um, you know, we're, we're the same as all you, you know, we're not any kind of untouchable or super motivated or anything like that. We're just guys that, that make the decision a little more often than we don't to do some hard work. Um, but I don't want to get too far on that tangent <laughs> because I know <laughs> we're, we're going to dive into some tactics here. We got plenty to cover, yeah, um, man. But, but yeah, with early season strategy. Um, so it's, it's similar here in the marshes to what it was in um, hill country. And um, it's, it's a lot centered around Oaks cause that window is short and it's uh, it's closing fast here. It's actually fading a lot sooner this year than I believe it has in the past. I think we're dealt with a little bit of drought on the front end this year and a lot of really, really smoky conditions from wildfires in Canada, uh, in Wisconsin, we're dealing with that smoke and it's caused, uh, I seen acorns aborted, you know, dropped when they were green and premature I've seen that in early August, late July. Um, and so uh, as of this point right now, we're three days out from season and I've tried to stay out of the woods for about two weeks at least. Um, I, I preferred to stay out, you know, the month before season. Um, but, so, you know, there are some areas that I don't expect to hunt till rut and I'll kind of give them some checks yet. Uh, but my early season strategy is going to be 
the bedding that is shifting to acorns as food or to maybe an ag field, but hitting acorns first. So it's going to kind of be keying in on those food sources that are phasing out rather quickly. And it's not that I'm hunting those food sources, it's I'm hunting travel to those food sources. And so acorns are kind of like your rarity where you can have an isolated tree. It can be a what I call a secondary food source to an ag field, which would be the primary. So they might be walking a mile to an ag field, uh, soybeans, if they're still right, like this time of year, they're not, they're not good now because of how dry it's been. But, you know, they be, they may be going a long distance to a major food source. Like maybe it's a major Oak Ridge, but they could be traveling 50 yards from their bed, 20 yards from their bed, you know, sometimes a hundred yards from their bed to this secondary, which might be a lone Oak tree. Things I'm really keen on in marshes. Um, and sometimes in hill country too, are uh, stinging nettle, uh, jewel weed, um, I'm looking at certain kinds of mushrooms and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of really unique, smaller food sources that are going to get hit on the way there. Like in Nebraska, we, we just talked about it. Sunflower, wild sunflower like right. that. That was a great source of browse golden rot, great source of browse sometimes. And, um, I'm keying in on cutting a buck off and that bedding that isn't quite frankly, isn't going to last long in this area. Like that pressure is going to hit them. I'm, I'm keying in on that bedding that I know is going to go out of phase because of pressure or changing food sources. And I'm keying in on cutting him off on his way to those temporary secondary food sources so that I can take advantage of this short time of year that we have where these bucks are relatively unpressured uh, in comparison to, you know, rut and stuff and uh, taking my best crack at them right away, getting really aggressive. And then um, as the season shifts on, those food sources start to change. I'm going to do a lot of in-season scouting to kind of adapt and figure out when they're shifting. Um, but yeah, there, there are plenty of really specific setups that those go hand in hand with, but I guess that's just my general approach there. Right. Yeah, that's good. I, I wanted to start with that big picture framework, now kind of piecing it apart just a little bit. Uh, oak trees, man, those are huge no matter where you are. If there are acorns falling on your ground, uh, especially if you have white oaks, like they're going to be right. a tremendous draw. Um, a couple of things that I've run into. Where I hunt in Wisconsin, uh, had a lot of bur oaks, right? And mm-hmm. those would often drop, like like what you're saying was early this year, they would often drop, like that was their normal time. Like they'd be done by the time, you know, season rolled around. Now you could right. find some white oaks that were still, you know, dropping some, I guess technically they're both part of the white oak family, but what you traditionally mm-hmm. think of as a white oak still dropping. Down here in the south where I'm at, there's this big concept around feed trees. Have you have you heard oh, yeah. much or yeah. thought much about that? What's your thought about feed trees, man? Because I hear these guys talking about a feed tree like this is the one tree that somehow has the magic sauce in those acorns, and that's the one that these deer want to go to. I'm working on developing my thought process on this. I don't think they're correct. Uh, I think it has <laughs> to do with other factors. I'm curious your thoughts. That's... Hey, immediately, that's where I'm leaning. Um, you know, it, it's funny they say that because I've seen plenty of stuff like hill country in western Wisconsin where for some reason, you know, there's this giant patch of oaks. There's oaks dropping in a buck's bed, but there's an oak tree 100 yards away that is just torn up. And, you know, you sit there and you look at it for a second and you're like, man, this is the tree for some reason. This tree's got like honey dripping from it or something like that, right. you know, and, and you think that there's some kind of crack in these acorns. Um, and so I just started eating the acorns to find, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but Dude, um, I thought you were dead real, serious. Um, and I was like, yes, <laughs> right. Right. So, um, so at, at first it just looks like it's a hot tree. And now my theory, and you know, I, maybe in a different area of the U S other people are seeing different things, but my theory is, is like you're, you're thinking here, it's related to, bedding and other deer's travel. It's, right. it's related mostly to that. And so what I'm finding is that tree 200 yards off, it, at least in my area when I hunted in Western Wisconsin, that is, you know, you can see track marks everywhere. There's poop everywhere, but it's away from the bedding. I'm finding that that's their nighttime culmination. And the reason it's kind of their nighttime culmination is because there's a lot of different bedding areas intersecting at that point. 
there's a lot of deer kind of activity going on. Sometimes there's scrapes nearby. If, you know, if you're in a tall, tall forest that doesn't have many licking branches available in the area, you might not see a scrape in that. But I'm finding it kind of, you know, if you spread out the palm in your hand and you look at the center where all your fingers join up, that's a lot of the times where I'm seeing these feed trees. Right. And, you know, those trees are also sometimes, you know, it's not a pattern of whether they're the first to drop or the last to drop or, or if they have the biggest acorns, you know, like I, I see very consistent oaks all around them that are very similar, but I think it's the culmination of bedding a lot of the times in those points. And I think there's a difference between what people are seeing as far as a screaming hot feed tree. Like if they're calling it like this amazing feed tree that all the deer go to, I'm sure there are guys down there that that's their definition, you know, and there's a lot of tree, deer there. I'm assuming that these deer are in areas where they're going to reach their feeding destination before dark, where that's really not the case a lot of the time in the north and in, in the Midwest and in, in places that people are constantly targeting. Oaks. I'm sure, again, I'm sure they get targeted very hard in the south. Sure. But um, I, I think a lot of the times they aren't reaching that feeding destination here. So it's not much of a use to actually pattern them on that to, to try to hunt them on that. And so I think the other definition you can go by with a feed tree is the place where the buck you want to kill is showing up all the time. Right. And it's particularly showing up in daylight. So a screaming hot feed tree to me is that secondary food source that the buck is reaching 15 minutes before or 15 minutes after shooting light, that kind of golden range. And my goal is to, you know, if I can sit back on that tree, sure. You know, I'll hunt that tree. That's it, not to say that, you know, he might, if he's a mature buck, want to hook down wind to that before he goes and feeds for a while. But my goal is to intercept him on the way to that tree. So, so my kind of definition of a screaming hot feed tree is somewhere where the buck I want to kill is consistently intercepting. And so, you know, I'm sure there are guys in the South that see feed trees the same way. You know, you could probably put a yep. camera over a feed tree that a whole bunch of deer calling at night. You're going to get that buck all the time. You're going to get a bunch of does all the time. You're going to get other bucks all the time. And it's probably largely going to be at night and you might get them during the day too. But I bet you there are other people that have that definition that I kind of go by where it's for some reason they find it exiting the bedding. Maybe they come across a big track and they see oaks around. They set a camera on that and they're screaming hot tree is that area that that buck is touching in daylight way more than he's touching any other tree. You know, it might not be because right. it's his favorite place to feed, but it's probably where he's stopping on his way to his primary food source. Yeah, man, that that's really, really good. That for me, I've gone to to kind of thinking about feed trees in the sense of uh, they are, like you said, they're a hub of some sort. You know, it's mm-hmm. not you you could almost think of them as like a primary scrape because that's all the deer in that area are going to be passing through there at at some point. So I put up cameras on a couple of different what I would consider feed trees last year. And what I noticed was uh, there was one in particular. Had I just hunted it one afternoon, I would have shot a nice buck because there were nice bucks passing through there. It wasn't the same nice buck every day. Uh, There were different ones. And so I've come to think of it as, you know, it's either the one that's closest to the bedding cover. So you get that bachelor group that hits there first. They spend a bunch of time milling around there. Or it's the one that, you know, because of the terrain, it's where just a lot of deer end up meeting up. You know, maybe there's a couple bucks that bed over here and a one buck that beds over here and a couple does that bed over here. And that's kind of where it all converges for them, you know, as far mm-hmm. as um, as far as uh, the first place where they all just kind of mingle together in, in the afternoon or last place they mingle in the morning. Um, so uh, a Midwestern analogy for this Um and, and again, I, I get a bit of this experience uh, from recently hunting out West in Sand Hills in Nebraska. It, you see a lot of deer replicating behavior when there aren't trees around that they would when there are trees around, you just don't get to see them do it because there's topography and trees and cover and whatnot in the way. Right. But you're like, man, that makes sense. He's doing the exact same thing. He's Jay hooking off of this point to go bed or he, you know, he's doing the same thing that I would picture them doing in hill country with timber, but I don't see them doing it in the timber, but like, an ag country, you know, we don't call it a screaming hot feed corner of the field, you know, like we don't call it the hot low (laughs) corner, you know, it's the place that the thermals are dumping in the afternoon. Right. You know, it's the place where multiple bedding features meet together. You know, when we see bucks come out and, and, you know, they're daylighting, you know, especially before the season starts, they're daylighting, you know, 
we don't call it that hot stuff, but they're going there because we've seen that, you know, that's where they have the advantage. We're down in the South, you know, that's ironically now you're, you're, you're shit, you're covered terrain, so to speak, where you can't see them behaving that way, where we see them on egg fields coming in there, sitting still, looking around, staying 10 yards back in the brush, smelling everything, letting does go first. You know, that that's something we're very, very familiar with. That might be the exact same way that they're approaching these feeding scenarios. Right. But it might just be a point, like you said, a hub that they can really easily monitor on the way out from their bed. Yeah. Or, or many deer can really easily monitor for danger. And it's a secure area. I mean, if, if pressure is such a huge factor and an oak tree has relatively the same nutrients as another oak tree on the exact same ridge 100 yards away, do you really think a deer is going to sacrifice its life for taste? <laughs> you, you know, yeah. it's not. Yeah, that's good. It, that's and and good, I do yeah. believe that they select food based on the nutrients they need. I, I know that's the way they're made up. Right. But I don't think a deer is going to go for the Twinkie over the, you know, oatmeal cake or whatever you want to call it because he has a particular taste. I think he's going to go for what helps him survive the best. Right. And I think if you're chasing mature bucks, if you make the bet on the area that helps him survive the best and you target that over, you know, the area that he might want to be or that you think looks ideal, I think you're making the right decision most of the time. Yeah. No, I, man, I agree a hundred percent. I agree a hundred percent. And along those lines, I, I have a scenario that I want to run by you. You alluded to it earlier. You're trying to focus in on that bedding that you know is about to shift. Um, last year, I was hunting Wisconsin at the end of September, right? I had four days there or something like that, uh, two days to hunt this area, and then another day that I was going to spend. So I guess I had three days. Uh, another day that I was going to spend with my buddy Pierce uh, hunting on his property. So <clears throat> I went into areas where... I've found terrific buck bedding in the past, kind of off down in the marsh. So I go into the first spot and I get to where I want to hang a camera and I'm going to push just a little bit further and then climb a tree. Well, I get in there and I'm like, I'm looking at the sign and I'm looking around. I'm like, dude, this feels bucky. Like this feels really bucky. Like my, my spidey senses start going off. Right. And I'm like, I want to hang this camera here, though, because I know this scrape is going to fire up in in November. So I was hanging cameras for my return visit in November. Mm -hmm. I took like two more steps and a giant jumps out of his bed and takes off straight towards the the water. And I'm like, crap, why why was he bedded here? He's right on the edge of this little like hardwood patch and the marsh. They're usually bedded a little further out into it. So I was like, all right, whatever. I'm going to hang this camera and I'm going to go hunt another bedding area that I know of. So I hung the camera there. Wasn't thinking anything about the bump and dump because I knew I wanted to hang another camera anyway. So I back out, pull out, go down and around to this other bedding location. And I hit another spot very similar and, um, you know, access and egress trails of the deer or whatever going down into the marsh. So I Mm -hmm. get down to there and I'm like looking at the sign again. I'm like, boy, this is this is kind of looking the same way, <laughs> kind of the same way as it was before. But I was like, that's all right. You know, so I literally walk out, I hang the camera, I walk out into the marsh and I'm looking at like a couple of trees that I wanted to hang in. And then I hear something back behind me and I turn around and look and another bug, he was probably only about a hundred inches, jumps up mm-hmm. behind me or had jumped up behind me and was standing there looking at me. He was 30 yards from me just watching me, but it wasn't until I stopped and started looking up at the trees to figure out which one I was going to climb that he decided to jump up. So those bucks hadn't bedded or hadn't shifted yet down into the marsh due to pressure. So my postseason scouting had told me they were bedding further down into the marsh. Well, I wasn't taking into account where they might be bedded early season. How are you thinking through not only where that bedding happens, but when that shift happens, because man, I missed it. The season had been open for two weeks. They should not have been bedded up there. In my, in my opinion, I was clearly wrong. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting case, man. And that's, that's happened to me and not in the exact same way, but that's happened to me very similarly, literally several times. Um, And it's really just like when I'm within that last, you know, depending on the deer's visibility, it's usually around 300 yards, but you know, don't put a number on this yourself. If you're thinking of a scenario, cause you know, open hardwoods, 
crackly leaves, no wind, whatever. It's, it's, they're all completely different scenarios. But when I'm within probably three times the distance that I think that buck is going to catch me from his bed, I slow way down. Right. I, I, right. Every step is deliberate. Every step is a pause. I'm analyzing the new cover that's around. I'm checking on trees. When I get to a pinch in a trail, I'm checking on trees for, for tine marks and stuff like that. Something I've noticed in cattails and something I've noticed in, um, in, in river crossings and stuff like that is, is there water or mud splashed up onto the trail? You know, like how fresh is every bit of the terrain around me? And so oftentimes, um, I'll have these preconceived notions that, you know, they should have shifted by now. And, uh, you know, sometimes it does take me bumping those deer to figure that out. You know, I'm not right. going to say that I, I'm perfect. And I go into these scenarios and there's this one thing that if you just pick up on it, like you're going to get it right every time it's, it's just not the case. And, and sometimes you'll sit too far back, but I err on the side of aggression. You know, I might've done the exact same thing you did. Um, but I err on the side of aggression because of how much I do postseason scouting I, I work my butt off to find a hundred scenarios where any kind of variation of the wind, you know, and uh, you know, they're all not, they're not all perfect, but I, I've worked very hard over the years that if I do bump up deer like that, you know, I call them my sacrificial lamb, you know, mm. like if I bump up deer like that, <laughs> they provide me that info I needed, you know, they're, they're done. I mean, they're dead to me. If, if, you know, I don't necessarily think they're going to come back. If it's a hard bump, they caught my wind. They saw me like, you know, they're, they might be gone to me. They might be in a whole new area, but I can start to apply this to a bunch of different areas. Um, or in at least the surrounding part of the state, you know, at least this region, you know, right. it's a little different. If you go to a completely different part of the state, you can't expect the pressure to, to equal out. But generally, um, the more that you scout, the more you'll actually find the human presence as well. And if you can't age that human presence, just, just think about how obvious the spots are the same way you sit in a buck bed and you think like, how smart is this buck? Like th there's no way I can hunt this deer. You start to get a feel that he's really intelligent. He's probably mature deer, right? Well, you start to get in these spots and you see a can laying around, right? Usually if I find cans, I don't think it's a very intelligent hunter. And I think it's probably a little bit later in the season. If it's even a hunter at all, let's say I only find marks on a tree. Like I only find places where sticks dug in and it's in a bent over tree and there's no branches trimmed right until you get to the very top. Then I'm like, shoot, this guy's probably pretty smart. And I start looking at the surrounding cover. I was like, man, he's sitting right on these oaks. Like I know that I'm probably going to get one crack at this Oak Island, you know? And like how obvious is it on a map too? Like, you know, if I'm seeing it on a map pretty easy, I think it's something that's probably going to get hit right away. But you know, so I kind of gauge the intelligence of the pressure in the surrounding area. Right. And then I get a feel for when I think those hunters are hunting it in the off season. And then, um, and then I'll use that to kind of gauge when I think the deer will be shifting back. Like I can tell you right now, there's an area I might sit opening day. I'm getting bucks on it in the evening. I know where they're going to be entering that Island. I have a scrape like further onto the Island that I have a camera over and I'm getting mature bucks on that scrape a little bit after dark and stuff but I know where they're going to be entering that Island in daylight because they're betting pretty close to it. I know that I got like one to two days to hunt that spot. Like it's an Oak Island in the middle of a marsh and Dan's been preaching that for years. Like it's, <laughs> it's going to get hit, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm even debating shifting off of the Island opening day, but the potential for success on it is, is kind of high. So it's, it's kind of high risk. I'm probably going to encounter another hunter, but if I don't, it could be a very successful sit. Right. You know? So, so, what I'm kind of doing is taking that, that knowledge I gained in the off season um, or any little thing that I pick up on, on the way in, like um, if I'm obviously I'm seeing hunters on the way in, seeing boot tracks, seeing where they're generally setting up. Um, I'm taking those little things into account and I'm determining that the pressure is typically going to be progressing further back onto the property as you go. Mm -hmm. And then those overlook spots close to the edges and the stuff that people don't think to hunt is what's going to get really good pre-rut rut. Um, and so I'm hitting those areas that I think is a little more obvious, but it just might not be getting hit yet. Right. Um, and I'm planning on them shifting off of that once the fresh human sign and the historical human sign, you know, I think has hit the area. Hey guys, just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the How to Hunt Deer podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. 
They're on the cutting edge, making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that's a total game changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions in the past, you know how frustrating it can be to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of accessories. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with a 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. This this particular spot, from your answer, I know exactly what I didn't do. I didn't look for hunter sign on the way in. I I was pressed for time. I knew I wanted to get two cameras up. I was hurrying. Uh, now I did slow way down when I got into you know my last sort of what I consider the final approach to mm-hmm. to where I wanted to hunt, but I had just blown through all the other stuff and I wasn't looking to to where I usually see other hunters set up or I usually see their boot tracks or I can usually tell hey they you know they've been walking through this tall grass over here to get to that tree to climb it or whatever. I just blew past all of that and that's where I mm-hmm. went wrong. Uh, and this area, <clears throat> so I've had, um, I've hunted this specific area, I think th- three early seasons, no, two early seasons, and um, both times have had consistent mature buck encounters, but it's a, it's really inconsistent as to how they come out of the bedding in this spot, mm-hmm. where it can be anywhere within this, like, 150-yard span, so I'll see them, like, they're 60 yards that way. So I move over there and then the next day they're 60 yards the other way. And I'm like, ah, oh, crap. Now I got to move over. You know, so you play that cat and mouse kind of back and forth game a little bit right. with them. And, and, but that's always like a week or two after. So we're talking, you know, October 7th, 8th would usually be mm-hmm. when I'm in there, which I still kind of consider early season, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, there's some like strategies that you can actually employ if so for for reference you know I'm, I'm moving back to southeastern wisconsin i really really want to kill in the swamps this year right right and i did a lot of postseason scouting identified a lot of human sign i don't know how that's actually going to lay out this season like when the timing is going to be so I'm, I'm using what i would have thought of probably three years ago as far as my order of sits and i'm using that as i assume that's what i'm going up against like some pretty intelligent competition but i don't want to hunt spots that like I don't select spots to hunt that I would picture anyone else selecting because I don't think a mature buck is going to live in an area where a bunch of people would select to hunt. Right. So I'm kind of gauging what I assume other people are doing based on what I probably would have done, you know, on on my second best guesses. Um, Mm. But there's a few things that I did in the Hills and there's a few things that I do all the time that actually help me gauge that stuff. Whenever I'm spring scouting, I'm constantly looking at the ground, you know, I, I move really slowly in spring, especially in the, in the summer months, I move very, very slowly scouting. Cause you kind of have to, when it starts to get greener, mm-hmm. but I'm looking at the ground for tracks. I'm looking up for climber marks. Anytime I feel like I'm in a spot, I'm always looking for that trail camera tree stand or that strap left in the tree, anything like that, you know? And so every time I come across human sign and market in my onyx in that like deep red color, and to me, red means danger. So I, I want my onyx to reflect the way a deer's thinking. And so whenever I come across a human trail and I see night eyes, I see um, you know, flagging tape, anything like that, I walk that trail and I track myself and I put it in red. Mm-hmm. And I have lots of places in western Wisconsin and a few places already in, in southeastern Wisconsin where I haven't even hunted yet, um, where I've got humans common access to their stand. I've got you know, whether they marked it or not, whether it's just following old boot prints or not. Like I'm marking places where I see boot prints, places where I see trail cameras, where the stands are, how I think those people are getting in. And, um, and so I might actually cruise by and check whether that stand has been accessed or not. And a lot of times when people are going in their stands, they cut a branch or something, or they cut a branch at their stand. And, you know, that's pretty obvious to a human being to be able to see whether that tree's got its bark ripped up or a branch cut off. Like you can see that, you know, if someone's been in it recently and, um, one thing I used to do in Western Wisconsin is you got those logging trails everywhere. You know, you got your like ATV trails going way back. A lot of times you got places with light dirt or mud or sand or whatever. I'll take like a five yard long stretch and I'll take 
you know, however wide that it's usually like tire tracks or whatever, or maybe it's the whole width of the trail. And I'll just kind of like, whether it be with a branch or my boot, I'll just smooth out the dirt, you know, I'll just make it flat. So if something passes over that dirt, sometimes you pick up a buck track, but like (laughs) if someone passes over that dirt, you know, they're not going to walk five yards off the trail and risk making a bunch of noise. Right. You know, they're going to walk on that trail and they're not going to notice that like, Oh gosh, this section's cleared. Maybe someone's looking for my boot print. You know, they don't do that. Right. So I might know that there's this one trail that's accessing a major area of this ridge and there's pretty obvious setup along it. Um, I'm probably early on in that trail going to smooth out an area and see if I catch a boot track in that. And it might be a scenario like I'm thinking right now for early season where like if I see pressure, I'm going to, I'm going to bump off right away and get hug up to that bedding a little bit closer you know, it might be an area where I go in there and say, if this ridge is disturbed, I know this other spot's going to be really hot for the same wind. Yeah. So I might keep a monitor kind of close to there. I mean, some people probably go as far as setting trail cameras to monitor human presence. Yeah. I don't got the money or time for that. Right. But right. That, that would not be a bad strategy either. Right. I actually employed that. I was, that was going to be my next point is I did that this past year. Um, there is a specific terrain feature that's a re- that's really good during the rut. Um, Mm -hmm. and if it's trying to think of the best way to say this, there are some people who know around where I hunt, um, Mm -hmm. and I've run into them on, on the, on the property. So I want to try to say this the best way I can. If this one, if this one gets pressured, I know where the next one is, where the movement adjusts to, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Or as it gets pressured. Oh, absolutely. Um, So I know where that, I know where that second best movement flow is if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it's almost better when that one is pressured because when that one's pressured, all the movement goes to the secondary spot as opposed to it being split between the two terrain features, yep. if that makes sense. So yeah, absolutely. I've put um, cameras on that main access trail that brings you to that terrain feature because everybody goes through there. You're not busting brush to get there because it is too thick. There's like right. a very defined way to get there. And, you know, not only have I gotten a lot of good bucks on that, on that camera. Cause it's just a, a hot spot. But at the same time, I'm getting Intel of like whether a hunter was in there or, or not, you know, whether, whether it's been pressured or not. And that actually played quite a bit into my, uh, into my rut hunt last year, knowing yeah. exactly what those other hunters were doing. Yeah. And that's another mentality of the shift. Like a lot of people think of the shift as uh, acorns are out or food sources are changing and stuff like that. The shift, the way I think about it the most is the pressure. I mean, if those deer could just select the food sources that they want to hit based on what they're hungriest for, what they desire in daylight. Cause I, cause I care about the daylight movement. You know, I care about the way they move in daylight to get to those food sources. If they could just move wherever they wanted in daylight and it only had to do with those food sources, then, you know, this wouldn't be that big of a deal. It'd be pretty easy to tell when they're shifting. You know, I could glass Oaks from quarter mile away and see if they're dropping, but you know, it, it has a lot to do with pressure, which is why it isn't obvious, which is why you can't always predict it, you know, but there are, like we talked about, there's little things you can do to try to boost the odds in your favor. Right. Right. So let's jump into, I mean, we've, we've alluded to this a lot, right? Like in season scouting plays a huge role in your overall strategy. Like you're always kind of on the scout. Yeah. I'm curious about times where, um, I know I've had moments where I'm like, I'm just not on the deer. Like I'm just plain not on them right now. And I've got to go back to the drawing drawing board because, you know, my postseason scouting from last year, it's not shaking out like that. Like I've got to figure something new out. What yeah. does that process regrouping scouting effort look like for you? Are you just saying, I'm going to go in here and blow it up just like it's postseason? Or are you still taking those targeted, I'm going to go sit this, but I'm going to scout my way in kind of approaches? Yeah. So there's like a, there's a, there's three different things that come to mind right away. There's hitting completely new properties, like, you know, shaking the etch sketch going fresh. Like there, there's that there's stalking your way in. So hunting, but, but literally stalking to the point where you plan on shooting one in bed. Um, and there's observing. Um, and so though I use those three strategies kind of dependent on the situation. Um, I don't often just go to a completely new property unless I feel like I busted out and that's the reason I'm not seeing deer or I feel like other people have busted it out. Um, and, and that's why I scout so many different properties. So, I've, you know, I know where good bucks are on a lot of different ones. And if I'm trying to hunt my way down and I just find that, 
I've either busted too much or other people have busted too much, or maybe that deer's dead and I'm chasing a ghost. I'm like, Hey, you know, let's, let's restart here. You know, I, I keep that confidence in myself that I, I know I can get it done in any amount of time. I know it can happen. I don't think it's necessarily going to like, I, I know I have, I have confidence in ability, but not confidence in outcome. I'm right. not certain that something's going to happen where I start getting complacent with my actions, but I'm certain that at any moment it can. And I'm certain that I can earn my way to it in the blink of an eye. Right. You know, so I keep that confidence up. I keep confidence in my ability up and I shift to a new area and I tell myself, Hey, new shot, you know, let's go learn what there is to about this land and I can, you know, track down any buck. And I know there was good bucks in this area. So I may do that. Um, I have gained a crap load of confidence these past few years in my ability to stock up on a deer, you know, whether it's mature or not, whether it's light wind or high or, you know, high wind or not, I've gained a lot of confidence in that. And that's in the last few years I've stocked up and got shots on five deer. Now you guys will see in my Nebraska video, I do a couple stalks and some are great. Some aren't so great. And like, you know, it, I've gained a lot of knowledge about the deer's movement and the way they bet. And so when I'm not certain about what a deer is doing, and I kind of implemented this strategy in Nebraska is I do what I call, like I I find a sacrificial lamb. I think we talked about that a little bit already, but like I find that I'm like, I don't know what these deer are doing. I can't gauge this pressure. You know, I'm like, I'm going to go slowly, slowly, slowly walk up on this buck bed from a long ways away. I'm going to make sure my wind's in my favor. I'm going to make sure I'm only moving when there's some other kind of sound. And it might take me all freaking night, but I'm eventually going to get to a bed and I might shoot a deer in it and I might bump a deer out of it. But when I get to that bed, I'm going to figure out why that deer was doing what it's doing. And so, you know, that deer's gone now, but you know, and it may be a situation where they bump downwind and I can actually locate them again and hunt them again. And it may stack areas in my favor, but generally, you know, when I'm slapping that deer on the ass and telling them it's game on, it's not always a great thing, but I get to learn a lot. I get to learn with absolute certainty what that buck that I now have seen, because I went slow and and I, I was feet away when they jumped and that's almost always how it is. I get to learn with absolute certainty what the class of the deer was that I bumped why he was there, what the conditions are at the moment. And I gain a whole lot of confidence learning exactly what that deer was doing, both why he was betting there, why he went the way he went. You know, if I saw, you know, satellite betting in the area, I, I learned all these different things from it and that boosts my confidence. And I can kind of, whether that blows up the property of that deer or not, I'm going to copy that scenario and paste it to a lot of different areas. And I start to see the way that those line up and I get a, an in-depth look at exactly what's going on in my time of the season for at least one mature deer in the area, which those areas, you know, those concepts apply to many different deer. And I learned to paste it in different scenarios and um, it helps me get on deer like very quickly. I mean, we talked before the podcast about my experience in Nebraska um, and man, did that help a lot. That that helps so much. I came into that scenario with a lot of different misconceptions and, um, and a lot of them got removed. I gained a lot of certainty and I gained a lot of confidence and it helped me a crap ton in Nebraska. And then kind of that third strategy is, you know, observation sits. And a lot of guys talk about this, but, uh, man, I, I'm curious because I hear this all the time. There's so many guys that sit in observation sit and also get a crack at the deer, you know, where they right. didn't think they, right. right. Isn't it weird how much you hear that? Like, they're like, Oh, I'm just, I'm just going to go into this spot and observe. And they're like, Holy crap. You know, I was like, 70 yards away or 60 yards away, or this buck came into my stand. I shot him, yeah. you know, like that happens kind of shockingly often. Right. And so I don't think it's a lost cause, um, especially observing in the morning for where a buck beds to target in the afternoon, or to, if you had the opportunity to stock up on right away during that day, during that morning. Um, I think you're learning a lot of information. And at worst, if you're in a good area to observe and you're really diligently picking out every individual piece of bedding cover and taking long looks at it and stuff like that, you've at least ruled out an area, you know, yeah. there may be one buck that slipped in there while you didn't see it or a couple of does or something like that. But if you're in an area that you think should be loaded with deer and you're observing that bedding and you know, this doesn't work in all scenarios, but if you're observing that bedding and you believe a bunch of deer should be stacked in this and you see one or two and you don't see a mature buck, you know, you may miss a deer, but you can relocate to an area that is going to be stacked with stuff. And so, you know, you, you can eliminate a bunch of land by, 
either eliminating the scenarios that they're not betting in by doing that stocking in. Um, you can figure out what they're doing by, you know, bumping one really close. You can figure out, you know, you can visually see how they're behaving if you're doing observation sets. So if you kind of interchangeably introduce these strategies, you can get rid of a lot of your misconceptions and then gain a lot of certainty in a very short amount of time. And yeah, and yeah you're going to have to sacrifice a deer or you're going to have to sacrifice your scent in area you may want to hunt or you're going to have to sacrifice a morning where you could have killed. But, you know, at some point, the reward way outweighs that risk. Yeah, and that's where I think, like, I wonder over the years, my fear of bumping deer and of messing things up, I wonder how many deer that's cost me over the years yeah. because I'm afraid to get in there and bump them or I'm afraid to sit back and observe because, oh, no, I saw him, but he was at 100 yards. Now I'll never see him again. You know, like, like mm-hmm. I'm just so scared not to be in the right position to make that moment count, to, like, force it to happen in that moment that I think it's cost me a lot of deer over the years. Um, I want to learn how to observe effectively here in the deep South, because I think it can be done. Um, mm-hmm. I'm kind of on a journey towards that this year of trying to figure out, okay, what does, what does meaningful observation look like? It's probably going to involve gas lines and roads and power lines and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff that, you know, is not, it's not flashy at all. You know, when right. it comes to, when it comes to it, it it's not observing, you know, from a, from a hillside where you can look out over the prairie and watch them come down and cross the river in the same spot or what, you know what I mean? It's not that, yeah, yeah. but gosh, I, I do want to just, I want to get a lot better at that. And, and honestly, we, I talked a little bit about it earlier. You know, this year is an in season scouting year for me on this new lease. I did not pick this lease up in time. Uh, it was Turkey season by the time I got the lease. And so uh-huh. um, it was go time for Turkey hunting. I was either, hunting here with my kids or I was in Iowa or Wisconsin or Alabama or whatever. I was doing something Turkey related. Then by the time it was, you know, I did have a little bit of time to scout. It was so green and just so thick and so, uh, so busy, man. The summers now have become like those have become the, let's make sure the family feels loved so that come Mm -hmm. fall, I can do what I need to do. Right. (laughs) You know know what I mean? No, absolutely. Um, As far as you're like, observing there i think you're right like it it, it's not gonna be glamorous by any means not like you're out west it's not even like you have necessarily an open oak stand you know like you might have in wisconsin um and it's it's cool hearing a lot of people talk about that i haven't done observing in that capacity as far as like you know glassing it i mean i've observed a large bottom but you know i was on stand at the time but um i would say that a keep in mind a glimpse of a deer in a travel direction right? Uh, at the conditions that he's arriving at is a lot of information gathered. Yeah. You know, you can, you can extrapolate that stuff from a trail camera picture, but there's always going to be that little thing sitting in the back of your head. just that little bit of uncertainty, you know? Yep. And, um, you know, cause you don't know what the wind's doing at the exact spot of the camera necessarily, or, or what the, the humidity felt like, or you don't know if that deer was just bumped or something, but if you're out in the woods you're sitting on stand or you're sitting in an area and you can hear and see and smell and everything that that's going on, man, is that a rush and is that a confidence boost? Whether you get that deer or not, you know, like that that little bit of information you might gather from that tiny gap you have to look at or, or say you're just observing a, you know, a 50 yard patch that you wouldn't typically hunt. Like, you know, you, you stand to gain a lot from a very little, if you observe and, and it just depends on what you're willing to risk as far as your time in the woods. Right. Right. And I, and I would save it for days that you're obviously if I have, you know, nine out of 10 factors on a bedding area that I've been looking for lining up, that's probably not a day I'm going to observe. Yeah. Um, because I, cause I haven't ran out of that confidence at least in one area, you know, but if you're really pounding your head in the wall, like that's probably the day to kind of get to it. Yeah. And th- so tomorrow morning it's going to be hot. It's going to be muggy. Um, it's not ideal conditions. I don't know the property well, but I do know that in this location, there are six or seven factors that are all contributing to, a a buck being in this, you know, 200 yard circle at some point right. during the day. So I'm going to put myself in that circle and just get in there and see what I see, you know, and, yeah. and gather Intel because, um, and I learned, you know, learned this talking to, to Jake Bush the first time 
I had him on the show. Um, he was like, dude, if I don't have the intel, I'm going to go in there and get it no matter what. Like, right. like I'm not, right. I'm not going to sit back and hang in a stand when I have no idea what's going on in there. That makes zero sense. That's a terrible use dude. of my time. So I'm going to get in there and get what I need, whatever I have to do to get it. Dude, a hundred percent. And and based on the time that this podcast is going live, I'm okay with giving this away, but I had a shot opportunity in Nebraska, right? I, I actually released an error on this. Um, but I was in a stand and it was really hot out. I was sitting in this oxbow of a river that was shaded and everywhere around me was sand hills, right? And so sitting in this oxbow and um, I have this fawn come out that I glass in the morning going out the exact same way it did this morning. And I was like, all right, you know, it, it's going to start working. Like all the other deer that I saw this morning are going to start doing the same thing, right? And so in Nebraska, the, the cattle mingle a lot with the deer and they, they're fine with going 20 yards from each other. It's not like the Midwest, you know, they, they have to live in the same areas. And so, um, but I noticed the cattle were all bumping the bedding that I deemed the bucks would come from and no bucks were getting up. Mm. And, you know, it was hot as hell. I'd not seen them moving well in the afternoon. I was like, you know what? Like, I don't have confidence it's going to happen. It, I just had to face it. Like, I, I don't think it's going to happen tonight. Um, I was like, I'm going to get out of the stand and I'm going to figure out why the heck the deer I saw that were bedded are not coming back and replicating what they did this morning and why only the fawn, you know, did so. And so I started walking where I saw a mule deer doe and her fawn, her, her pretty like year old, pretty old fawn, um, go to the bed and I get up and I, I had my GoPro on. I had my arrow knocked, you know, I have my release on the same thing. I always do I have my backpack and stand on my back, but I'm always ready, you know, and I'm stalking, walking slowly. And, um, I get up to these beds expecting to jump the deer out of it because the deer aren't moving. And they had just worked off. Like you can almost mm. see the grass recovering from where they were laying, you know? And so they had worked off, but I hadn't spooked them. So I was like, all right. I was like, well, they are, they are moving. You know, it's 15 minutes before shooting's over, you know, like they are moving at this time, but they're not moving far at all. So right. in my mind, I was like, all right, tomorrow the key is observation. Like the key is going to be that morning observation and maybe even intercepting on the way to where I think they're going to bet. And so I work a little further. I get around this turn and on this steep bluff that I essentially have to walk up, there's an on the ears eight point watching me. Like just standing there at like 30, it, what was 32 yards? I, I guessed him at 40. And, um, I, you know, flicked on the GoPro, press record, drew back, put a shot out and, you know, I misjudged range a little bit. So I, I didn't kill the deer long story short, but, um, but man, like I, I was stalking out of bedding. I made the decision that I was going to figure out exactly what these deer were doing. And it just so happened that, you know, I didn't see this buck in the morning cause he was out of view of my glassing point but he was doing the same thing that those does were doing. You know, he was betting with this, the same, it's kind of like, um, it's like a North, um, I want to say Northwest facing slope. And so, you know, it's very, very shaded in the morning. And then he had a pine that he just shoved himself under for when that sun switched over the top of him and he could get shade in the afternoon. It was going to be a little bit warmer in the afternoon, but you know, for most of the day he was in very good shade from the terrain. And then he also had shade from that, that tree. So he was only, 15 yards from his bedding, Jeez. like at 15 minutes before closing, he was, he, he had worked 15 yards. Um, and, and I know that because I, you know, I shot him and I went and found the arrow and walked up the hill to get reception. And I've wasn't very long before I stopped falling on my face from the steepness that his bed was right there. Oh man. And, um, you know, I just caught him in a position where he couldn't run anywhere because he either had to go straight up a cliff or straight down one. So, um, so, you know, he, he stood there for a second and, I was just around this corner. He was going to see what I was doing, you know, before he made a decision. So I got a shot off. Um, it certainly helps that they're not very pressured deer out there. Right. Um, but, um, but yeah, dude, it pays off to, you know, when you're, whether you're on the way in, you're on the way out to have an arrow knocked, you know, have your release on clipped if you want to, but be working slowly. And it, all it takes, you know, when you walk up on a deer doing this, you'll realize that all it takes is that deer making a step before you were or while you were right. or for it takes two seconds where that deer enters your view for you to be still and that deer to be moving. Right. Or it takes a gust of wind for him not to hear you. And he probably would have like, you know, if you're looking for that twitch of antlers, you see it, you know, you see it a good amount. So like 
then you're going to gain a lot of confidence in this. And you're not going to think that, you know, say you get there tomorrow and, and sun comes up, nothing's lining up. And once you have these confidence, this confidence that this can happen like this, you're not going to think it's a wasted hunt for you to go walking through because there's a good chance it happens because you know that, you know, what you're doing can result in an opportunity. But, you know, I, I found this in Nebraska too. It's like a lot of the times where I thought I was about to bump a deer, I wasn't. And that caused me to kind of step back and like realize like, hey, there's something, they're doing something very different than I thought they were. And, you know, that's when I took a step back even further than what I initially thought and uh, really got some observation in. So, but I could have spent the whole week on my initial conception or my initial perception of what was going to happen. Right. And because I didn't have the whole recipe together and I was determined to get those ingredients, I not only got a shot opportunity, but my entire week changed and led to much more success going forward. Yeah. How, how would your adjustment and strategy have changed if you were not able to observe and glass the way that you could? Um, yeah. So I purposefully selected areas, um, cause we were going all over the state. I purposefully selected areas that I could observe in glass. Okay. And, and I, I selected areas that I thought I might be able to, I thought I might be able to sit in a stand and also glass. I kind of selected areas where I could do both. Okay. And then I realized from that glassing aspect, how much it was getting me opportunities and like how much observing that behavior was, was working for me. Right. And it, it just so happened that that behavior lined up to a lot of different areas that I could also glass. So, um, if I couldn't do that, it was going to be a lot, a lot more walking right. and a lot, a lot more still hunting, a lot more tracks based, you know, I, I see tracks like most people see a trail camera pick, you know, mm-hmm. like if I see a really good track, especially compared to, to what I'm seeing in the local area, typically, you know, much bigger, uh, going in intelligent areas, not following all the doe trails, stuff like that. If, I, if I'm following a track, you know, that gives me really high confidence. So if I can't see the deer itself, I want to get on a track. I want to get on some kind of sign. If I can't sit back in glass and I can't select a scenario where I will be able to do that. Um, and I, let's say I I'm totally handcuffed and I can't observe a long range and I'm only working through timber, you know, like I'm going to keep moving on them tracks until they get fresher and fresher and fresher. And I'm going to keep the wind in my favor, albeit. Um, but yeah, and, and it might just be bumping, bumping a deer. You know, right. it might be that I never get to observe one before I bump it. And, and I just have to go off the size of the bed and the tracks leading to it. But that is going to be enough info that I can help apply it to other scenarios. Yeah. You know, rarely do you very closely, you rarely do you bump a deer at 10 yards and you've been following his tracks for 30 minutes and, uh, you know, you're in the scenario where the wind's blowing and all that stuff. Rarely when you do that and you're very observant, do you have no idea what was going on? You right. Know, where you're like, why the hell was a deer doing this? And even if you're <laughs> like that, even if you're like, why the hell is a deer doing this? There's going to be similar places around you. Mm-hmm. And, and then you can start applying that to other areas. Yeah. It might be a 180 from what you originally thought, but you can still take that scenario if you're willing to learn and try to throw it to some other stuff. And it may work, it may not, but it's a much better guess than I have no idea what these deer are doing and I'm just going to sit this tree because I think it might be okay. Right. It's, it's, it's a lot better than hanging and hoping. And, you know, I've, I've gotten to the point now where I hunt fewer days than I did when I was younger. Uh, like, like by a lot, like I hunt a lot fewer days than, than I used to. Um, but I'm more efficient. I kill more deer. I see more deer. And I don't think it's just because I'm not pressuring spots. I think it's because I'm, I'm hunting smart. And I realize I don't have time to waste. Like I don't have time. I don't have a bad sit to waste. You know what I mean? I can't just go hang in a tree. So I'm either going to be scouting so that my next sit is really good, or I'm going to be sitting somewhere where I can gain Intel. I'm not going to go sit somewhere that I'm not going to gain Intel and I'm probably not going to see anything. That's right. Right. At least putting yourself in the position to, to gain stuff. Right. Right. So like, like tomorrow, for instance, I, I'm going to see something. I'm going to learn something. I might just hear the deer down in the bottom. I might hear them travel through. Okay, great. Like now I know we can adjust. Like I can, you know, that's one good thing about how thick it is down here. It's really hard for those deer to move through quietly. Like if you get into open pines, they can move through quiet. But dude, this stuff is eat up with Japanese honeysuckle in the bottom and it's just, Mm. it's nasty. It's real nasty. So they're not moving through that without making any sound. So, uh, man, we were going to hit on some thermal hub stuff. And, 
you know, thinking about it, I, th- I think we're going to bump that to another to another episode if you're good with that. Sure, um, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, we're 57 minutes in, and this has been so good. I don't want to do a hard <laughs> shift. I feel like this has just been pure goodness so far. And so I, <laughs> I want to keep it as utility as utilitarian as possible for people. Cause I think we've given them a lot on one topic where they can kind of take a deep dive. I want to pick your brain just a minute though, as we close out mm-hmm. opening day in Wisconsin, Saturday, right? Where are you going to be? What are you doing? Um, and I mean, man, GPS it, coordinates, man. I don't mean, I don't mean <laughs> generally, I mean, I, I need coordinates. Yeah. All right. So North 34, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> Right. So, um, yeah, uh, man, it, so one first totally depends on the wind direction. Um, I, I'm actually, I'm forcing myself not to look at the weather report right now. Uh, uh so I, I can wait till Thursday afternoon to look at it because you know what, I'm going to look at the weather report. I'm going to be like, this is my spot. This is what I'm doing. I'm set for it. Then right. I'm going to look at it Friday at midnight and it's going to be 30 degrees off, 90 degrees off. Right. And I'm going to change my whole plan. And then I'm going to go in with less confidence. I'm going to tweak myself out. So I'm, I'm handcuffing myself away from the weather app right now. Dude, that's a good move, man. Right. I, I don't think anyone, I mean, if people at work better not be telling me weather spoilers, I'm going to be telling them like, Hey man, come on. I haven't seen that movie yet. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I'm going to get some weird looks, but, but definitely man, like I, I am, I've seen a lot of oaks in my scouting. I've seen oaks that are still dropping. I know from cell cam pictures and stuff, I know that we got oaks still dropping from, from videos and whatnot. And I know we've got deer travel in relation to oaks at night. So my goal is to be, so it, it, this being marsh country, I'm targeting isolated cover around oak islands. Now there are some bits of cover that are much more obvious than others. For instance, a tree versus a shrub or a bush in relation to a tree or, you know, downwind of access, you know, that also leads to that island. So my goal is to start with the little more obvious things first. And, and what that's going to be is probably a tree that's isolated outside of an Oak Island. Um, and then I'm going to start to gravitate towards areas where I believe they'll be shifting to, but if I eliminate those spots that are obvious and if other people eliminate those spots that are obvious right away, it's only stacking the ones that are a little less obvious. Right. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not going to say it's going to happen opening day. I'm saying I have a lot of confidence because those deer are unpressured right now. Um, I have a lot of confidence it can happen opening day, but my confidence is only increasing as other people work their way into the woods, as I start to eliminate those obvious things. Right. Um, I often find them in willows about, hundred yards on the downwind side of a willow Island Hmm. of like an Island of trees. So I'm going to be attacking those isolated covers around the Oak Island. I'm expecting people to hammer the actual edges of that Oak Island right away. Cause you know, they're, they're probably getting cameras blown up and stuff like that. I'm expecting people to actually hammer the islands right away. I'm going to hunt the isolated cover around it. And I'm going to use that to slowly tighten that noose on a deer. And um, then, you know, maybe even some ground sits, uh, I think that's going to be a huge thing this year, actually, is some very tight quarters, ground sits, uh, because not a lot of people are doing that in a marsh. Um, I think that's going to help me get away from the pressure quite a bit. But, but yeah, that's my general attack, man. I'm going to wait for the wind direction, make sure it lines up for me to hunt it, but it mostly lines up for that buck to be in the bed. And uh, I'm going to hunt the little bit more obvious stuff before people get into it. And then I'm going to start narrowing down on those really, really key spots. I like bumping it. from property to property and replicating those scenarios. I like it, man. I Something you just said, I feel like can't be emphasized enough, and and I want to I want to circle back to it just because I've seen it in Louisiana, I've seen it in Alabama, I've seen it in Georgia, I've seen it in Wisconsin, I've seen it in Mississippi, I've seen it in every state that I've deer hunted. Those willows, like you said, or something that acts like them, where there's willow with some tall grass around it or something like that, that just holds deer, like oh, it, yeah. it, they, it just holds deer. And another thing that's consistent across, you know, uh, across states and across properties, whether it's private, public, whatever it is, deer keeping tabs on access. Like yeah. even in doing, you know, the consulting that we do, we always find if, if there's a, a neighbor with a long winding driveway, 
you go up on the high point that overlooks that long winding driveway and guess what? There's bedding right there every Mm -hmm. single time. So yeah, makes a lot of sense, man. Well, dude, good luck Saturday morning. Uh, I hope you get a big one. I look forward to, you know, seeing that sucker pop up on, uh, on the old, (laughs) on the old gram. Uh, where can folks find more from you and not just more from you, but this video that, uh, should be coming out pretty soon. Yeah. If actually, it's not already, it might be already. Ago. Oh, right. wait, a minute dude, ago. That's right. So there's one that's out a We're minute there. ago. Right. Um, hey, first, thank you very much uh, for the good luck wishes, man. Good luck to you, too. I'm sure neither of us need it, but I'm sure some of us will want it at some point oh, this season. Dude, I need oh. all of it I can get, man. <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, so the channel you're talking about with that video that's going to debut is The Wild Calling. Uh, that's my personal YouTube channel. Like I said, I make videos for the hunting beast. So, uh, you know, I got a little bit of content coming out on there, but if you want to see my strategy, pick my mind about how I'm finding these deer and see me call my shot and actually kill these deer, that's going to be on my channel, the wild calling. And that video you're talking about that is now two minutes old, um, is a hype video for my Nebraska trip. Um, it's a minute-long trailer that took me over two hours to edit. <laughs> and um, it's, uh, man, dude, it gets me jacked up. Um, I had a few friends tell me they were going to run through some walls after watching it. But, um, man, <laughs> oh, it, awesome. it um, gets me excited. I hope you guys like it, and this series is only going to be better than that. So awesome. stay tuned. Well, dude, I'll link I'll link not only your YouTube channel but also that video in, in the show notes for this episode. Thanks, man. And we got to get you on again because we had another topic that I wanted to touch on because I know it plays into – you know, some of your hill country stuff, especially. And that is the topic of thermal hubs. And they're becoming more and more interesting to me. I I, I live in hill country now, so they're super interesting. But the differences between how deer use thermal hubs where, where ag is up high versus where they use thermal hubs where ag is down low versus where I'm at in a true hill country big wood setting where there is no ag. But there's still great thermal hubs all over the place. So how have you seen the shifts? But We'll have to save that for next time, man. So it gives us something. That's gonna uh, be a good one. Oh, dude, I, I'm I'm jacked for that because I hunt a little <laughs> bit of the I hunt a little bit of all three, right? Like just from traveling from Georgia to Alabama to Wisconsin, like I'm in a little bit of all three of them. So uh, yeah, I can't wait, dude. Yeah, me too, man. I, you know me, I'm always willing to talk to you. Heck <laughs> I yeah. love it. Sweet. All right, buddy. Well, have a good evening. I appreciate your time. Thanks, man. You too, Josh. That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you could leave us a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. While you're at it, you can follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at howtohuntdeer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me. Suggest topics that you want to hear, guests you want to hear from, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show and help me bring you great content each and every week. If you're looking for more outdoor content, check out thesportsmansempire.com where you're going to find my other podcast, The Wisconsin Sportsman, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts. 